All right, take your Bibles, if you will, tonight and turn to James chapter 2. We are going through the book of James, and um, by way of introduction, and I think we've taken three or four weeks on the, on the first chapter and just kind of looked at an overview of what the book of James is about, and uh, I think there's several different things. I think really uh, a couple different themes of the book of James would certainly be an active faith. Uh, the idea that, yes, we have faith, but our works accompany that faith to show that we have it. And, uh, and also, a, a big theme I find in the book of James is the idea of maturing as Christians. When he talks about uh, perfection and uh, perfect and entire, that's talking about maturity. And that's what we should all be aiming at as Christians, is to become more and more mature in Jesus Christ. But we're getting to James chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to read a, a, a greater length of passage than what we're going to actually study tonight because I want you to get the context and the whole gist of the passage. We're going to talk about it tonight, and then we're going to talk about it next Wednesday night to kind of give you the, the entire passage and talk about all of it. But uh, let's just start there in James chapter 2 and verse number 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou here, or sit here under my footstool. Are, not ye, then, are, are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect of persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that he hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment." As we begin here into chapter 2, I want to point something out here. The wording is very important, and it's very significant. And we're going to talk about the sin and the error that he's describing in just a, a minute. But notice what, that James begins by exalting Jesus Christ. And James, we, we, we looked at it. James has a lot of things that a lot of the books in the rest of the New Testament don't have. Words or phrases or things like that. But one of the things, James says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is using his full title, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't think that's insignificant. Uh, I mean, obviously, we see Jesus or God or whatever, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the fact that James uses that entire title for Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord means that he is God. Jesus means that he is the Savior, and then Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah meaning anointed, and it refers to Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. But while, while that name Jesus refers particularly to the Lord's humanity and his incarnation by which he became a man to die for our sins, Christ refers particularly to the Lord's eternal deity as the Son of God. And so 
he's wrapping all of that up in one. We say that so often, Lord Jesus Christ. For them, this is the, this is the early church. James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, which is essentially the first church. It's not a term that they were used to hearing all the time the way that we are. So the fact that he's calling him the Lord Jesus Christ is setting Jesus Christ up as a significant figure and, and as the Messiah and as the Savior and as God. And, and I think, what a thing to miss if we didn't take the time to stop and consider that, especially when you consider that James was the half-brother of Jesus, and during Jesus' lifetime, he did not believe in Jesus. He only believed in Jesus after he rose from the dead. And the fact then that he didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection means he had a thorough conversion. And, and he knew who Jesus was. And he knows who Jesus is. And the fact then that he's pointing that out I don't think is insignificant. The Lord Jesus Christ, he calls him, sets him completely. He's not just my brother He's not just, you know, uh, uh, the Savior. He's not just some, you know, somebody that came along and, and did a lot of good things. He's God. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. And I know better than anybody else. He was my brother, and I didn't believe in him. But after the resurrection, I did. And he's, he sets him up. He, he, he sets him up as the Lord Jesus Christ right there. Now, let's get some context. In fact, keep your finger there or keep a bookmark or something there in James chapter 2. We're going to be coming back a lot. But turn over to Proverbs chapter 14. What appears to be taking place here is that the Jewish believers that James was writing to uh, had a distinct lack of love toward the poor, toward the downtrodden. They, they thought of themselves as pretty high and mighty, it seems. Otherwise, James would have not had to bring this up at all. They were discriminating against them, uh, the poor, not meeting their needs. They were lacking in mercy, which honestly was the heart of the problem. And so James has to get on them, and James does that quite a bit. In, in, uh, in, this, in this short epistle, but the instructions that James gives us in this chapter really goes against the grain of human society. Uh, respect of persons and partiality or prejudice, as we often call it, based on social standing, based on income, it, it's a foundational aspect of the world's cultures. That's, that's the way of the natural man. That's the way a lot of people look at it. They're naturally going to give deference to somebody who is dressed nicer and has more money and has a higher social standing than the people who don't, right? Which I think, uh, and I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but I think we do the same thing a lot of times when it comes to missions, right? Well, I can't go to those people. That's just a poor, tiny little village. They don't have money. They don't have anything. We need to go to this class of people, or we need to reach this one. Same thing happens in, a, in not even on foreign mission fields. happens here, Right? We tend to put our churches not in poorer areas, but in the richer areas, and then try to reach the poor. Uh, is it wrong to do that? It, it depends. I mean, where's, where's the Lord leading you, right? Uh, but, but they are just as much as worthy of receiving the gospel as the rich are. They're just as much as worthy of receiving the gospel as you were, right? But the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 20, the poor is hated even of his own neighbor, but the rich hath many friends. Well, that's, that's culture, that's society, right? Turn a couple pages over to Proverbs chapter 19, verse number 6. It's, describes it in just a little different way. Many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. We're all tempted by that sin, and that's exactly what Jesus calls it, or James calls it here, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
He says in verse number 9 of James chapter 2, but if you have respect to person, ye commit sin. So he's, he's, not, he's not hiding anything. He's putting it right out there in the open. You do this, you're sinning. And it's a natural part of society, that naturally the way that it, that it goes. And so the final thing that I want to add by way of introduction here is, is more of a caveat as we start to discuss this thing. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that people are never to be treated differently, even in the assembly. And I don't have time to take you through these passages tonight, but there ought to be a distinction based on office, for example, right? We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 17, uh, uh, obey them that have the rule over you. So there is a distinction in, in the offices in the church. There's also a distinction that should be made on basis of age, right? In 1 Timothy, we're told that, uh, you know, that they give, give honor to the elders and that the, that the aged women should be teaching the younger and that they should have that respect. So, so there's a little bit of a distinction there. There also ought to be a distinction made on the basis of positions of authority. We find that in Romans chapter 13. Uh, and then also, you know, the, the distinction that ought to be made on the basis of character. It's, it's wise, and we find this in Psalm 15, if you want to write it down and look at it later. Psalm 15, verse 4 is a great example of this. But it's wise to treat a morally upstanding person differently than, than a reprobate, right? That's why we have church discipline and everything else. So, so the idea of everybody ought to be treated the same, they should be. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight. But there is some distinctions that could be made as well. Because if a man is known to be honest and another man is known to be a, a liar, for example, a, a clear distinction ought to be made between those two people regarding receiving their testimony and everything else. So, so it's a caveat to say that I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that we treat everybody the same when it comes to offices and age and all of those other things, but uh, in regards to what we're going to talk about tonight, which is this. And we're going to look at the first part of this passage tonight on the error of partiality as a sin against the Lord. And we're going to look at the second part of that next week and, and see it as a sin against the law, the royal law. James uses that term. It's the only place we see that term in the entire Bible, the royal law. But we're going to look at that first part tonight, the error of partiality as a sin against the Lord. So the first thing I want you to see is this. An act of faith is one that does not prejudge. James chapter 2, if you turn back over there in verse number 1, says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now, we would use the term prejudice today. Uh, that's not a Bible term, but it helps us grasp what the apostle James is saying here. James calls it respect of persons there in verse number 1. Verse number 4, he calls it partial, as in one over another. The end of that verse, he calls it judges of evil thoughts. Verse number six, he calls it to despise. So it's, it's, it's looked at by a lot of different names or a lot of different descriptions, but we would call it a prejudice today. And, and prejudice is often looked at in terms of skin color, but, but prejudice is any preconceived opinion or feeling, either favorable or unfavorable. That's what a prejudice is. Uh, you are looking at it through the lens of your experience or through the lens of whatever, uh, and, and, and putting one above another. And the sad truth is that a lot of us tend to look at people through prejudiced eyes. Um, when we prejudge somebody's desirability to be a part of our church or not be a part of our church on a skin surface appraisal for, for good or bad, wow, that guy looks like he's got money. He's somebody we really need to pursue to try to get into the church, right? Or wow, that guy doesn't look like he has a whole lot. Yeah, if he comes back, great. If not, no loss, right? That's the way a lot of churches look at people. 
And that there's a natural tendency for all of us to do that. And it ought not to be that way. We ought to be treating everybody the same. That's exactly what he's talking about. He said, when he says, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect to persons, that's what he's saying. An active faith, that's not the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be prejudiced against other people. Now, now let me say this. I don't want everybody as a member of our church. We cannot have everybody as a member of our church. Number one, if everybody in the world was a member here, then you know, it wouldn't fit, number one. But number two, there ought to be a distinction in who we allow in as a member of the church, right? Uh, the unsaved should not be allowed in as members. That's one of, the, one of the simple foundational elements of church membership is you have to be saved. By the way, and this takes us back in history a little bit, but how many of you have heard of the Great Awakening? Great Awakening that happened in the 1700s, right? You know, you, you think about this, 1700s, everybody was a Christian, Right? Everybody was moral. Everybody loved the Bible. Why did they need a great awakening? I'll tell you why. Because of well, one, of the, one of the main reasons was because of what was known as the halfway covenant. The halfway covenant was churches who were allowing children of members and people with money to buy their membership. Not, no, no, no evidence of salvation, no testimony of salvation, no... Uh, no testimony of a baptism after salvation. None of those things. They were allowing them into the church because they were losing people. So how do you let? How do you? How do you keep the church numbers up? Well, you just let anybody and everybody into the church. It was a halfway covenant. You didn't have to be saved as long as you knew somebody who was. You didn't have to be. You know. You didn't have to be. Uh, 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 you didn't have to fit all the qualifications as long as you were related to somebody who did. So they started letting all these people in there. And what do you think happened to the church? It disintegrated very quickly. It went downhill very fast. And so then along comes this great awakening and made people realize, hey, this is not the way that it ought to be done. But the, but the point here and, the, and, the, and the, the caution here for us is you can't let somebody that doesn't have a testimony of salvation in as a member of the church. It's going to corrupt the church. And that's why God puts that as a requirement for membership. You have to be saved in order to be a member. But also somebody who is spiritually rebellious or a troublemaker should not be allowed in as a member. And, and we have a lot of different passages that we could go to. Again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that tonight. But in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Revelation chapter 2, uh, we're told about the openly adulterous. They should not be allowed in as members of the church. If they're living in open sin, they cannot be members of the church. Uh, we have an example of that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Right? They were, they were uh, a great example of that there in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, somebody who is casual or somebody who is non-committed, fine, come as an attender. We're not going to tell them they cannot come to church, but they cannot be a member of the church. It's, it's important to guard that. So when we're talking about prejudging somebody, we're not saying that everybody just should be allowed in, and if they come in and they want to do this, then we have to let them because we can't, we can't judge somebody it's not saying that, but what, it, what we are saying and what James is saying here is we should never determine if somebody can come in our church based on whether they have money or don't, based on what the color of their skin is, based on, on you know, their, their class or their history or any of those other things. It ought to be based on biblical things, not on external things. The second thing we see is this, and James tells us this there in verse number two, uh, but the second thing is honoring a rich man while dishonoring a poor man is respect of persons. He gives us an example, so there's no question what he's talking about. Verse number two, for if there come 
unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel. And there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou here, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? James gets very specific here, and he gives, he gives an example of treating people differently because of their appearance, or because of their clothing, or because of their social standing. Oh, you're dressed very well. Here, we've got a spot for you right there. Oh, you're not dressed very well. Here, you can sit under the pew over here, right? That's what he's saying. Sit under my footstool. That's what he's talking about. You're, you're not worthy to be one of us because you're not dressed very well. You probably don't have a lot of money. You get to sit over here. We've got a special seat for people like you. It's all the way in the back, right? Actually, it's probably different now. Uh, if, if, you're, uh, if you're in good standing, you get to sit in the back. If you're not, you have to sit on the front row. That's, that's kind of the way that it's looked at nowadays, but... Uh, that's the example, and, and the example that he's given us is in context of the church. That's what he means by your assembly. If any come unto your assembly, right? That word that he uses there is referring to those Jewish synagogues. That was their assembly. But what James is saying here is that there's, that's always a temptation in any church, right? Uh, a church takes money to run. And it's very easy to begin viewing people as dollar equivalents instead of God's sheep, Right? Well, that person gives that much money, and I can't offend them because then they might stop coming, and then they won't be giving that money anymore. So rather than preaching what they need and feeding the sheep, we see them as a dollar equivalent. That's one of the reasons why I can't say that I'm completely ignorant of what people give, but I really don't know what people in our church give. And you know, every once in a while, after somebody's left, and I can tell the offerings have gone down a little bit, I'll ask the guys that do the counting, hey, you know, were they, yeah, they gave pretty decent. Yeah, and, and, and it's not there anymore, and I find out that way. But I, I don't do it on purpose because I don't want that to cloud what I'm going to preach or how I'm going to preach based on what somebody gives or based on how much money they're bringing into the offering. If, if, I, am, if I am preaching based on that, then we are fitting into this category where we're being prejudiced against somebody's social standing. Well, they're not going to give a lot of money, so I can preach whatever I want to, and if they leave, oh, well right? But these people, I really got to tiptoe and be careful around what I'm saying because I don't want them to get mad and leave because they give a lot. And if they leave, then we're really going to notice it. That's exactly what he's talking about. And that's a temptation anywhere because it, it does take money to run a church. Um, but a, a, and a church needs money to minister, and it gets very easy sometimes to begin viewing people as giving units Instead of, uh, uh, you know, to advance some aspect of the church's ministry, instead of seeing them as, as God's people, instead of seeing them as sheep that need a shepherd and need, need that direction. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, because uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing to, to have to worry about money. I mean, I, I probably should worry about it more. I don't. The same thing, you know, I've, I've told you many times about our building situation, and I've said five, six million dollars so many times that it doesn't even sound like a lot of money anymore, and, and if God gives us five million dollars to go buy a piece of property or gives us a piece of property that's worth five million dollars, he's going to do it how he's going to do it. I mean, it, he could, it, we could get a piece of property for five hundred thousand dollars, and we don't have that either, so it doesn't really matter. God's going to have to provide it, Right. Um, but the danger for all of us in our personal lives and in our church, though, is to get caught up in exactly what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, not to get caught up in. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil, 
which while some coveted after it, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. One of the evils that the love of money potentially leads to is the one that James is discussing, prejudice or partiality, right? We could, we could talk about that for a while when it comes to the love of money. Oh, money is the root of all evil. No, money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. That could be somebody that's a multi-multi-millionaire who just can't get enough or somebody that does not have anything that just can't get enough. Everybody can fit into that category, right? Everybody can fall into the trap of the love of money. But especially in relation to what James is talking about here, we can fall into that trap where we get prejudiced or we start to prejudge based on how much or how little money somebody has. And so let me remind you again of what James said at the beginning. He begins by reminding us that partiality is contrary to faith in Christ. My brethren, have not the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. By the way, Christ was born into a very poor family. There was a sacrifice that they were supposed to make of a lamb, right? If you did not have enough money to buy a lamb, then the poor man's sacrifice was two turtle doves. And if you look at the time when Jesus was, was being dedicated in the temple, his family could only afford those two turtle doves. They were poor. They gave a poor man's offering. Jesus visited the homes of the rich publicans and the poor fishermen. He loved everyone with respect to who they were. He knew what it was like to be poor. He preached to the rich and the poor. He saved the rich and the poor. He loved the outcast and the untouchables. He spoke to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, the same way that he spoke to Nicodemus. He gave both of them the gospel, and he treated them both the exact same way. He could have treated that Samaritan woman like a dog, and she would have expected that because that's what all of them did. He could have treated the rich young ruler as some great guy that he could fill his money, you know, fill his pockets up with if he wanted to. He treated them both the same. There is no prejudice in Jesus Christ, and, and that's why he's saying, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect of persons because that's not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why James says that respect of persons does not characterize the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, back in James chapter two, not only is favoring the rich over the poor partiality, it shows a basic misunderstanding of how God actually works. And James explains that again in verse number five. Look what he says. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? And actually, let me point out here what James says. Notice that, that James here has great love for his readers, right? James, he does what a pastor has to do, and the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that, you know, sometimes a, a pastor has to preach things that will cut you to the bone, not, not by slashing you back and forth with a, with a sharp tongue, but by giving you what the Bible says and by showing you what the Bible says, and sometimes that hurts because it's the truth, the Bible says that we as pastors must reprove and rebuke and exhort. And reproof and rebuke and exhortation does not always feel good. But it also says in that verse, with all long suffering and doctrine. And I think that's exactly what James is doing here. He's saying, You're doing this wrong. 
But he says, my beloved brethren, please help me understand this with me. He's showing that, that great love that he has toward them. Yes, I might be cutting you to the bone with this thing because you're doing something wrong, but you're my beloved brethren. That's why I'm telling you this. And what a, what a great love that he has. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 says, we, we must speak the truth in love, right? We have to speak the truth. We have to speak the truth in love. And many times, speaking the truth in love will really help us get our message across. But James says, my beloved brethren. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The point that James is making here in verse number 5 is that usually God chooses the poor, the weak, the despised people as his instruments because many times they give him the glory for what happens because they know that it's not them, right? Somebody who is, who is wealthy or somebody that, who is, you know, that is really educated or, or really uh, smart or whatever, many times when something happens and God uses them, they start to try to take credit for it, right? We, we tend to do that, and we're not even in those categories, most of us, right? But the poor and the weak and the despised, they realize that they're in that category. They're poor, they're weak, they're despised. And so when God uses them, they say, all the glory goes to God. He's the one that used me because I know that I couldn't do that in myself. And that's what James, that's the point that James is making. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is Paul speaking now, but he says in verse number 26, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Why is that? Because they're all wrapped up in themselves. They're too busy thinking about how good they are. And, and many times they're too busy out there making the money and, and building the power and building the prestige, right? But he says in verse 27, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And again, how often does that happen? How did God use that guy? Him? I mean, you can imagine what people must have thought about the Apostle Paul. He showed up and they're saying, that's the Apostle Paul? Him? Right? He says that he was small and weak in stature, but mighty in pen, right? God used him? And I think that's, what, that's, that's why Paul is writing this. God uses the, hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the, the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Why can't God use somebody who thinks he's a somebody? Because that, he, he would glory in himself, in God's presence, right? Why can he use somebody who knows he's weak? Because he knows he's weak, and, and God gets all the glory at that point, not him. We won't take the time to turn to Mark chapter 12 or Luke chapter 21, but we find the story of the, the widow with her two mites, right? What did Jesus say? All those, all those uh, wealthy guys put in all their money and everything. She gave two mites. And to somebody looking at that, they might think, it's like a kid putting two pennies in the offering plate, right? <laughs> two pennies? Look at how much I'm putting in, right? But God said, she gave more than all of you combined because she gave everything that she had. The weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. Foolish things to confound the wise. Not only that, in fact, turn over to Mark chapter 19. But usually the poor are more receptive because the poor are more conscious of their need. 
Right? Luke 16 gives us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, it doesn't mean that because Lazarus was to heaven and because the rich man was rich, he went to hell. But notice who received the gospel and who didn't. Lazarus, who sat there at the rich man's table waiting for the crumbs to be carried out to the gate and given to him, received Jesus Christ, and the rich man, who had seemingly everything, rejected him. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 24, and again I say unto you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Brother Josh, if you put that picture up there, when, when we were in Israel, we went to, this is on the Temple Mount. You can see some people standing over there on the side to kind of give you an idea of how big this gate is. But that is traditionally known as the eye of the needle. Go, go to the next picture. That little door down there at the bottom is what was called the eye of the needle. That was a whole gate. That was uh, one of the gates that was there that, that accessed the old city of Jerusalem from the Temple Mount. And that, that little door in the bottom of that gate is known as the eye of the needle. Now, I don't know if Jesus was actually talking about a, a, an eye of a needle like we think of today or if he was talking about that as the eye of a needle. But either way, it's very difficult for a camel to get through either one of them, right? It's a whole lot harder for a camel to get through an eye of a needle, right? A lot of women have a hard time putting a piece of thread through the eye of a needle, let alone a camel, right? Now, I, 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 I think that maybe he could be talking about something like this because it's not impossible for a rich man to get saved, right? It's just very difficult. I mean, it's impossible to put a camel through the eye of a needle that you're using for thread, right? It's impossible. It's not impossible for a rich man to get saved, but it's very difficult because they're so wrapped up in their money and so wrapped up in themselves and so wrapped up in, I don't need anything else because I already have it all. Why do I need Jesus, right? But a poor man, poor men are often a lot more receptive because they say, I don't have anything. I need Jesus, right? Uh, rich people tend to, to think of themselves as, you know, I've got, a, I've got this great job, I've got a nice house, I've got, I've got two cars, I've got 2.5 children. All I need is Jesus Christ as the cherry on top of the ice cream, right? He's not the cherry on top of the ice cream. You have Jesus and he has you or you have nothing. And it's much easier for a poor man to accept it than it is for a rich man because they realize they don't have anything. Right? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. They might be poor in money, but he says they're rich in faith. Verse number five of James chapter two, if you turn back over there. He says, hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? Side note here, money should not be the focus in this life. Right? God puts the focus on being rich in faith. Nowhere do we ever find that God commends somebody for being rich. Now, he doesn't condemn somebody for being rich either. There's nothing wrong with having money. But many, many, many times he commends somebody for being poor but rich in faith or not having much but showing great faith, right? Here's the point. If you're going to err, it ought to be on the side of prejudging in favor of the poor. The last thing is this for tonight. Number four, not only does this prejudging show a basic misunderstanding of how God works, it's illogical. And James asks some great questions here in verse number six. But you have despised the poor, he says. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? 
Rich men, in other words, are not worthy of partiality. They're not worthy for us to give them the, the, the preference, right? The, the way of the rich in this, in this sinful world is evil unless they've had influence from the Word of God. And there have been many men who were very rich, who were saved, who used that money and that wealth for the glory of God. So I'm not saying that just because you're rich, you're evil. But many of them are. And that's typically they're unjust, they're oppressive. Typically, they reject Christ. They despise God's word. I mean, look at the, some of the wealthiest men are, are, are sponsoring and, and donating to the worst politicians out there that are promoting everything that the Bible despises. Why, if I'm just throwing a name out there, George Soros came into this church, would we give him the deference and treat him like he's some great person because he's got tons of money? Everything that he gives his money to is anti-God and anti-our church and anti-Christianity, why would we give him the deference? Why would we give him the, the, the position of honor? Just because he has money, right? That's what James is asking. Uh, aren't they the ones that oppress you? Aren't they the ones that draw you before the judgment seats? Don't they blaspheme the worthy name by which you're called? Why would you treat them better than you treat the poor? George Pullman, you might recognize his name. He was the owner of the, the Pullman Palace Company, but, they, but he... Uh, they, they made and operated the, the sleeping cars, the luxury cars. Uh, this was back in the day when, when the train was the best mode of transportation. And uh, he slashed the wages of his workers, and then he increased the rates of the, uh, that he charged them for rent and utilities in his company, and the workers went on strike. And they didn't have the same pull that they have nowadays, and so... Uh, eventually, because this, it, it just it ground transportation to a halt, President Cleveland sent federal troops in there to break the strike up. And business continued as usual. These guys went back to work. But thousands of those workers and their families, George Pullman, had marked who they were and basically fired them. And if he did not fire them, he cut their wages so low that many of them almost starved to death. And to the point where President Cleveland actually went to him and begged him to give them their jobs back, begged him to raise their wages, and he would not do it. And he had a, he had a town that was known as Pullman, Illinois, that he, had a lot, that he let a lot of these people rent in. And he, he raised the rent to the point where most of them couldn't even afford to, to live in the house. They were out on the streets because of that. And three years after that, he died, bitter, bitter old man. And he was so afraid of what those workers were going to do to his body that he had them bury him under eight feet of concrete so they couldn't desecrate his body because he knew how much they hated him. But again, why then would you treat George Pullman as this great, you know, this great person because he has tons of money when he's treating people that way? He's oppressing the poor. He's oppressing uh, those people. Albert Barnes, a, a commentator, said it this way, even though they're known to despise religion in their hearts, and not to be sparing of their words of reproach and scorn toward Christianity, though they are known to be blasphemers and to have the most thorough contempt for serious spiritual religion, yet there is many a professing Christian who would prefer to be at a party given by such persons than at a prayer meeting where their poorer brethren are assembled, who would rather be known by the world to be the associates and friends of such persons than of those humble believers who can make no boast of rank or wealth and who are looked down upon with contempt by the, by the great and the gay. What a, way to, what a way to word that. That's exactly what James is saying there. 
These are the guys that hate you because you are a Christian. They hate Christ. They hate everything you stand for. Why would you give them the preference? Why would you treat them better than you treat the poor or anybody else? The rich are the ones who cause the opposition for the church. You think about how many times, and I, I know of a couple situations right now, one of a church that's up in Balt the Baltimore area, that uh, you know some of these wealthy men in the town are opposing where they want to put a church building and uh, have just made it almost impossible for them to get the, the area rezoned so they can put a church building there, right? Why would you give that, those guys deference? They hate the church. They're doing everything they can to fight against it. The rich are the ones who make light of the, quote, simple faith or the brainwashed belief of the common people. So if, if, if they give you or your church and your religion all sorts of hassle and aggravation and insult and everything else, why would we ever give preference to the rich over somebody who comes in that doesn't have a lot, not dressed very well, obviously doesn't have a great station in life. Maybe even by the way they talk, you can tell they're uneducated or anything else. Why would we give deference to them? So the point that James is making here in this first portion of chapter two is that the error of partiality, or as we know it, prejudice, is an error that's a sin against the Lord. And he makes no bones about it there in verse number nine. If you have respect to persons, ye commit sin. Verse number one, it's not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ to have respect of persons. All it takes is a simple look at the example of Jesus Christ to see that we should look at every man, uh, not as rich or poor, not as black or white or Indian or any other color, not as, you know, not as well-dressed or poorly dressed, but as a soul that Jesus Christ came to save. That's how we ought to look at him. The sin of partiality is a sin against the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the second half of that, uh, that passage when we get back together next week. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you for an opportunity we've had to be here in your house tonight. Thank you for the fact that you saw us as sinners in need of a Savior and not uh, looked, looked down upon us or, or looked at us in any different way. God, we're so thankful for that. I thank you for saving me. Pray that you'd help us as a church to be a lighthouse to this community, drawing anybody and everybody in that wants to hear the message of the gospel. And I pray that you'd help our church to be a church that is not prejudiced toward anybody, but we see everybody equally. God, I pray that you'd use us because of it. Thank you again for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're dismissed.